Uh, Open up to John's Gospel. We're in John chapter 6. We are going to look at a very familiar text. We're going to look at a very familiar um, miracle. This is the only miracle besides the resurrection um, that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle. Uh, It is a great one. It's one that you've probably heard. You're not dumb if you haven't and haven't engaged with it. Um, But it is the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is actually a bit misleading uh, because it was a lot more than that. And uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. But before we even jump into this miracle, I want you to remember, why do we have miracles? Why are they written down in these texts? Why are they written down here? Guys, they are are pointing to something. Miracles aren't an end. Uh, an end in and of themselves. They're pointing to something. They exist to show us, to teach us a deeper reality about who this Jesus is. So keep that in your mind as we go and we read this story that's familiar to you about Jesus taking a little bit of fish and bread and making it a lot. So don't get caught up in that. John chapter 6 verse 1 reads this. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That has much significance, actually. It's going to play in a lot everywhere we go after this miracle. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So that's saying that it was just 5,000 men. So there's been estimates anywhere from at least 10,000 people, because women and children weren't counted here, 5,000 men, uh, anywhere from 10 to 20,000. So you can take your pick in there if you want, 10 to 20,000 people. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, as we dive and investigate who this Jesus is that could do things that are seemingly impossible that he could do things that truly satisfies. Lord, that's what we're all looking for. Lord, this morning we woke up, something got us out of bed, something caused us to, 
put the, the clothes on that we did. Something drives us. May we understand from this text that those desires, those longings, those cravings, Lord, they can be satisfied in the person of your son, Jesus. So, Lord, will you open our eyes, open our hearts. We ask it only in Jesus' name. Amen. Macy was praying with me, so excuse her. She, that's, that's her prayer language. Um, so we got the girls a trampoline for Christmas. Um, how many of you have a trampoline? You grew up with a trampoline? Any major injuries? Okay, good. Um, I had the distinct honor of putting this trampoline together uh, on Christmas Eve when the, the temperature was somewhere in the 20s. Um, so that was, that was fun. But uh, I'm reading the instructions, and uh, it's somewhat logical. Um, and even though most instructions I, I think they do as a joke, you know, it's written by like a seven-year-old boy somewhere in a sweatshop, like, well, oh, they'll get it. Um, I'm reading the instructions, and I'm going, and I get to the part, I have the whole thing framed up. You know, it's a circular deal <clears throat> with his metal poles. And I get to the part of the, where you have to put the springs in. And I read in the instructions, it says there should be 96 springs. You know, you go around, you hook it, you do the thing, you hook it, you do the thing. And I look at the springs, and I'm going, there ain't 96 springs in this box. Like, maybe there's seven. <laughs> like, I'm just looking down there, and I go, there's no way there's 96. So anyway, I'm just going, all right, well, i gotta, I got to start. So I grab a spring, I hook it, I do it. You go to the other side, I grab it. And lo and behold, I mean, literally, I, I keep grabbing, and they, they, they're there. I, I swear they had to have multiplied. I mean, looking at the box of springs, I'm going, there's like 18 springs in there. There's no way there's nine, almost 100 of these in there. But seriously, I take one, I hook it, and I keep going. I get all the way around. Sure enough, there was 96 springs. Now, what I'm not proposing is that there was a, a Christmas Eve miracle in my backyard uh, that actually multiplied the number of springs that would be put on my children's trampoline. I'm not proposing that, but what I am proposing is this. Our eyes, our hearts, our perceptions, our faith can trick us. And we oftentimes think and, and, and we oftentimes live in a way that Functionally, our union with Christ, our adoption into the family of God, having God as our Father, we tend to live and think in ways of, you know what, it's, that's not going to be enough. That's not going to be enough. It might be a nice supplement, you know, and we, and we treat our faith as a supplement. You know, Jesus is kind of this seasoning that, that goes on the meal of our lives that just kind of makes it, makes it taste a little better, makes it a little bit more palatable. But this big, expansive, miraculous illustration that Jesus is doing in front of thousands of people this morning is communicating one thing. Yes, he wants to feed them. Yes, they were hungry people. Yes, he's meeting these people at a point of their need, their very, very real physical need. But what he's doing, he wants to prove this point. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. Jesus is enough. When it doesn't seem like Jesus could possibly be enough, he's enough. When it doesn't feel like Jesus could possibly be enough, and, and don't we tend to trust our feelings a lot of times? Even when it doesn't feel like, surely, just this relationship, this union with, with God through Christ, surely that could be enough. He's promised to be enough. 
Even when it makes seemingly no logical sense for Jesus to be enough. Friends, I want you to understand this morning, Jesus is enough. Let's jump, shall we? The first point I want you to get is this, the wrong Jesus. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We look at that and we go, oh man, good for the crowds. They were following Jesus. But why were they following Jesus? And see, this crowd was following Jesus, not the Jesus who's the real Jesus. They were following the wrong Jesus. You see, they had missed the point of his ministry, just like the Pharisees in John 2, when Jesus says, um, I, will re- I will break this temple apart and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're going, are you kidding me? It took us 46 years. What are you talking about? They missed it. Nicodemus missed it in John 3 when he goes, hey, you have to be reborn. And Nicodemus is going, wait, what? That sounds like it might hurt my mom. Like, I don't know what you're, what do you mean a a, a new birth? He missed it. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she missed it. Living water? Wait, wait, so I don't have to come back here? Well, what do you, you don't have a bucket. What are you, what what are you talking about? She missed it. And this crowd is missing it. This crowd is following the wrong Jesus. Verse 14 and 15, it shows us what the crowd is really up to. They saw Jesus. They had heard that he was healing the sick, doing some really crazy things. They wanted to benefit from some of that. So they follow him. They see him do this thing with the fish and the bread. And it says, oh, this is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. Jesus, in his wisdom and his humility, it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him you know, by force to make him king, He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they had a wrong idea of how this gospel works. They had a wrong idea of how the king of the world leads, how he rules. And that's the thing about our gospel. It's very upside down, isn't it? The humble are exalted. This obscure Jew comes and and he's going to establish his kingdom not with a sword, but with humility and self-sacrifice and compassion. I mean, our gospel is a very upside down gospel. And these people, they all of a sudden saw this man who was doing some neat things who could, who could further help them get what they wanted. And they, they began to, I guarantee you, they saw his, his face on a coin. You know, they saw it on a bill going, he's about to take care of Rome. Like, we're going to get him to be king. If this guy can make this stuff happen with a lot of, with, with you know, fish and bread, and he can multiply it like this. Yeah, that's the guy we want to follow. He's going to take care of some business. And they had totally missed the real ministry of Jesus, just like people all the way up until this point. What these people saw was <coughs> excuse me, someone who could advance their own desires. And see, that's the big problem with the prosperity gospel. That's the problem with... with From Osteen to Creflo Dollar, the problem with the prosperity gospel is this. Here's where it has it wrong. Jesus didn't come into the world to to sprinkle some of his seasoning so that we could get more of what we want intrinsically. 
We bo- we're, we're born and we're conditioned with these desires to think we know what we really need and want out of life. You know, the American dream and stability and comfort and all those things. This is where the prosperity gospel has it wrong. Jesus doesn't come to, to help us get those things quicker or better. He came to completely change our desires. Do you get that? He doesn't come to leave people in their same state wanting and desiring the same things and then says, oh, and let me help you out a little bit. He's not a seasoning. He came to fundamentally change our hearts and change our desires. Uh, Steve Austell spoke, uh, Clay's dad, <clears throat> at a men's breakfast yesterday. It was, it, was, it was fantastic. Dennis Wright gave a testimony, and then Steve Austell did a, a really, really cool and th- encouraging thing for, for us men. And uh, he gave one of the coolest illustrations I've ever heard, and he was talking about Lane, uh, Clay's older brother, when he was playing football. He was in third grade. And, um, and he would go out to his practices. He said not, not because he wanted to, but because... Uh, Clay's mom would, would, would kill Steve if he didn't go just to make sure Lane wasn't, you know, getting, getting killed or whatever. So the third grade, third or fourth grade. So it's kind of that line of like, is dad cool or is he embarrassing that he's here? So, so, so he's at the football practices and he goes, you know, week after week and, and, and Steve one night's asking Lane, um, Hey, do you mind that I'm there? Like, is that okay? He's like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. I love it. That's great. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're there. He's like, all right. He's like, cool. He's like, really? Like, you don't mind that I'm there? Yes, I love that you're there. It's awesome. I love that you're at my practices, everyone. Great, awesome. And um, so he goes, okay. Like, why? why? Why do you love that I'm there at your practices? He's like, oh, God, I love that you're there. If you weren't there, I'd never be able to find my water. <laughs> so he's like, basically, you're my water boy. Yeah, I love you being there because you're my water boy. And the illustration, and he just connected the dots so beautifully, the illustration that, that Steve was making is this. How often do we treat Jesus like our water boy? Yeah, yeah, I want you around. I want you around. Jesus, I, I really want you around. Um, give me a boyfriend. Give, give, give me a fiancé. Yeah, Jesus, I, I really want you around. Make sure my health stays Okay. Make sure that um, I make a decent living. M- make sure that I can live in a, in a gated community. Yeah, 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 I want you around, Jesus. Um, now, will you get me these things? Jesus, as a water boy. These people were after the wrong Jesus, and yet in his grace, he sticks with them, and he's going to show them who he truly is. My question to you is this. Which Jesus do you worship? Because there can be a wrong Jesus. Is it the Jesus of this book? Is it the Jesus who demands lordship, kingship over all of your life? Or is it a Jesus who's a kind of a seasoning? He helps me. He's magical, and he helps me get to where I want to go. Or has he reoriented your life? Has he given you new desires? The second, the one step ahead, Jesus. And, And I really labored on how to title this point because he's 
That's kind of incorrect. He's kind of a, a million steps ahead. But, but, you, but you'll get my point here. Look in verse 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes, seeing a large crowd. Yeah, 15,000 people coming toward him. Jesus said, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. It's probably my favorite sentence of the text. For he himself knew what he would do. Do you ever think that Jesus asks us things and puts us in circumstances in the same way as he did Philip here? It'd be easy for us to beat up on old Phil, you know, like, you idiot. Like, you've seen Jesus do things. You've walked around with the Savior of the world, and you've literally seen him change buckets of water into wine. You've seen him do, do other miraculous things, and you're still like, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know. He says, uh, 200 denarii wouldn't cover this. You know how much that was in this day? It was eight months' wages. So, so from January to September, all of the income that your parents make, he said even that wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd one meal. It'd be easier for us to beat up on him. But guys, not only would we do the same thing, we do the same thing. We do the same thing constantly. Verse 7 through 9, it kind of highlights the, the smallness of not only their, but our faith. 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them, even to get a little. And then one of his disciples, seemingly there's some hope. Andrew says to him, hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. If he just would have stopped there, we would have gone, oh, he gets it. He gets that Jesus is the ruler of everything, can do whatever. He goes, but what are they for so many? Ah, you were so close. What are they for so many? And yet Jesus himself knew what he would do. Hey, put your phone up, bro. For Jesus himself knew what he would do. I want you to wrap your head around that, okay? Jesus comes in, 15, 18, 12,000 people walking up. And he uses it as an opportunity of ministry to show the inner circle, his disciples, I want to build your faith yet again. And I'm going to do it again. You're going to doubt me. I'm going to do it again. You're going to doubt me. I'm going to do it again. You're going to doubt me. How many times does he do this with us? You think about this. Our Lord is not without plans. Our Lord is not without plans. He surveys the needs of the world and, and, and He loves His children dearly enough to know exactly what each of us need. I want you to think about that. The billions of God's people that are on this planet and He knows exactly what each of us need. Someone walked up to me Wednesday night after the sermon and um, <coughs> so encouraging, just... They were floored. Oh, it's exactly, God knew exactly what I needed to hear tonight. This is something, I did a Bible study this morning, and, and this kind of common theme was in there, and the Lord's been really pressing and working in on me. That's exactly what I needed to hear. And I was just floored, and I'm always constantly amazed at that. Think about that. 
I mean, of, of all of God's children, isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit orchestrates the intimate details of billions of people's lives every day for His purposes and for our good? I mean, the Holy Spirit operates in this way that this thing that happens over here that seems disconnected and doesn't make any sense really is connected to the bigger picture. And this person, they show up to this thing. It's just amazing how God's providence works. Our Lord is not a God who's without plans. He knows what he's going to do. Be encouraged, friends. Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do with you. He already has in mind what he's going to do with, with, with your generation, with our nation, with your life, with your high school, with your college, with your spouse, or even lack thereof, with your future career. Listen, things don't catch God by surprise. He's never relied on the USA Today app like I do to get all my you know breaking news, things that I don't know about that just happened that, oh, now I know about. God doesn't need an app for that. Isn't our faith small? Our faith is small. Even people who walked with Jesus, people who had proved him or and or still, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? There's a lot of people, they're hungry, we only have a little food. Oh no, that's us. You know, I think one of the most significant ways that our faith is small is when it comes to this message that we're commanded to, to, to bring to, to the world. This message that we're commanded to bring to the uttermost parts of the world. I think this is one of the areas that our faith is the smallest. Unbelievers in our school, unbelievers at our work, unbelievers um, on our team, unbelievers in our families, in our lives. We assess them. We see the crowds. We see the crowds at Houston High School. We see the crowds at Briarcrest. We see the crowds at Kyrieville. We see crowds at work. We see the crowds and we go... Uh, Inadequate resources. What, what are we going to do? Not enough. There's not enough. I don't know enough. I'm not loud enough. I'm not a leader. I'm not smart enough. I'm not old enough. What if we just put ourselves in the master's hands? As insignificant or faithless or weak or scared we are. What if we just said here, it's not much. I'm just, I'm just five loaves and, and two dried out pieces of fish fillet. I'm not much. But here I am. I wonder what our communities would look like if we did that. Because I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if, if Jesus only had a little bit I wonder what, what God could do. It looks to me, if this is true, and it is, that he can do a lot more than meets the eye. The last point I want you to get is this. We have the all-sufficient Jesus. So the crowds followed the wrong Jesus. Jesus, get me stuff. You're doing cool things. We want to rule over the Romans, and it looks like you could probably squash them if you can do some of these tricks. So, yay, you, Jesus, I want you. Do stuff for me, Jesus. That's the wrong Jesus. 
And we see disciples whose faith is small, and, and they're going, oh, whoa, you are one step ahead, or a billion steps ahead. That's faith building. And then Jesus does this thing, and he goes, I'm enough. I am sufficient. Like in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And you might go, Why does it, what does it say there's much grass? What does it have to do with anything? This just affirms that details matter in the scripture. What that means is, okay, this, this, this jives with the fact that it was Passover time. And that's going to have much to do in, our, in the coming weeks when we talk about Jesus being the bread of life. This just says, oh, there was still grass, which means it wasn't in the dead of summer when it was all brown. It wasn't in the winter. It wasn't in the fall. There was much grass. That means, okay, it was Passover time. It was the spring. Just a, a little side note for you. So the men sat down, about 5,000 a number, which means ten to 20,000 people total. Jesus then took the loaves. He had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted when they had eaten their fill, it means when they were like, oh, we're so full, we can't have any more. He told them, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. And how much did they gather up? Filled 12 baskets from fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Christ didn't just give them enough to get by. He gave abundantly. Christian, young Christian, you're going to taste and see this. Maybe you already have. But if you keep walking this narrow road by faith, you're going to see this. God's not satisfied just to go, Ugh, you kind of disgust me because I'm holy and you're sinful, but I'm gracious, so I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you this escape clause, and you have some insurance. You're not going to go to hell anymore. That's not, that's not the kind of God that we serve. He came to give life and give it abundantly. He goes, oh, you're not just getting in. I'm adopting you, the king. I'm not just rescuing you from, from spiritual poverty and orphanage. I'm adopting you because I'm the king, and I'm giving you every benefit that I've given to my perfect son. Guys, you look, I, I just look at my own life, my own Christian life, and I see this. He doesn't just say, eh, I'll erase the bad stuff, and let's just go our separate ways. Let's just call a truce. You do no more bad, and I'm going to go this way. He gives abundantly. I mean, I'm just looking here. He gives us, he gives us his spirit. He gives us these, these rich relationships that we enjoy to do this Christian journey with. He gives abundantly. He, he gives us a, a winter retreat, and he gives us Colorado, and he gives us waffles, and he gives us worship and song, and he gives us leaders to follow. Listen, he gives abundantly. And it's no accident that he's using literal bread here as an illustration, going, you like that? You're hungry. It's filling you up. You like that? It's satisfying you. Guess what? I'm better. And the only reason bread even exists is an illustration to how I fill up and how I satisfy. He's going to talk more, more about that specifically later in chapter 6 when he calls himself the bread of life. But he wants his people to taste for themselves and to see that he is good. Listen, Christ truly is enough to satisfy those deep longings within you. 
that drive you to be the person that you are, that drives everything about the way that you're doing life right now. Listen, something drives all of us to be who we are. And what I'm proposing is this, Christ is enough to satisfy that craving. Knowing and walking with him in a real relationship is not just like snacking on Pringles when you're starving. Knowing and walking with him in a real relationship is like a full-out Texas Day Brazil feast. John 10.10. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life. And he doesn't stop there. And that they may have it abundantly. That's the offering of this gospel. Have you ever tasted that? Last point, or, or, or let, me, let me close with this, rather. Um, we've all heard at some point in our Christian life, Jesus is enough. He, that's all you need. Bad day, Jesus is enough. Bad thing happened, Jesus, we've all heard that, most of us, I think. In our Christian circles, we've, we've been told that. We've, we've, it's been tweeted, we've seen it on shirts. Jesus is he's good, he's enough, he's better. Um, a few years ago, I sat right back there on that couch, face-to-face with a young man who was uh, addicted to drugs, and he told me, Jesus didn't work. He, I, I tried, he, he didn't work. <clears throat> and as we conversed and I assessed you know, a little bit of, of his life and what he was you know, thinking and, and talking about, I said, of course not. You, you, you have too much. You've never, you've never tried. You have too much. He said, Jesus, Jesus didn't work for me. A man that Tim Keller was counseling, who, who was about to lose both his career and his family, so seemingly he's about to lose everything that was precious to him, he said this. He said, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need. But you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Did you get that? I knew in principle that that Jesus is all you need, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And where I want to close is with this. God will use a shortage of lunch... He'll use a relationship split. He'll use a mysterious illness. He'll use a a debilitating injury. He'll use a college rejection letter. He'll use a death in the family. He'll use depression, you know, pain to prove to us that Jesus is enough. The question for us is this, do we have affections for the right Jesus? The one who reorients everything about our aspirations and desires in this life. If that's the one who has your heart, friends, be encouraged. If that's the one who has your heart, and you're walking by faith and not by sight after him, your baskets will overflow and you'll have more then you know what to do with. 
That's the promise of Jesus himself in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, oh, that we would be people who trust you. That we would be people that despite our feelings, despite our surrounding circumstances, would trust you, would, would look at you and say, you know what, doesn't make sense, doesn't feel right, but you're enough. I've seen you be enough. Your Holy Spirit has convinced me that you're enough. And so here I am. Here I am. Take me and use me. That we would be people who would trust like that. Lord, will you remove our love for this world? Will you uncloud our eyes? Give us a vision to truly see that you are trustworthy. That you can do whatever you want to do. Lord, you're not just one step ahead. You're 5,000 steps ahead. And so we can trust you. Give us the faith to walk in that, to believe that, to know that, to live that. Without your spirit, it won't happen. So we beg for him now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.